0: M. S. W. Media. My issue is, I can't endorse you. You will suck the life out of everything.
1: Oh, come on, really? This is John Taffer
0: from Bar Rescue, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn.
1: That's more like it.
0: Yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But well, this is what we're drinking with dandelion.
1: Welcome to the show. Good to have you. Coming up in just a few minutes, I'm going to be talking to the creator and host of one of the most popular adult beverage themed programs of all time. It's called Bar Rescue, and my guest is John Taffer. Thank you for joining me here on this podcast. This podcast. I know there's a lot. There's so many podcasts or a million podcasts out there. There were a lot before and then COVID, this pandemic launched a million more because everybody was stuck at home. They didn't know what the fuck to do. And they're like, Hey, let me start a podcast. And a lot of those were big celebrities that did that. And some of them are good. I listen to a lot of podcasts. In fact, this morning I was taking the dog for a walk and I decided to do some browsing into shows that I don't normally listen to. I wanted to see what the competition Was like. So I started browsing the top podcasts. I'm like, what are the big, these are the biggest shows. These are the ones that most people are listening to. And what am am I missing? Something? Can I get some tips, some pointers, some ideas, things I can do better? I'm always looking to do better here on what we're drinking. So one of the first shows I, I checked out was called Call Her Daddy. It's on Barstool Sports. It's hosted by a woman named Alex Cooper, not Alice Cooper, Alex Cooper. And boy, I don't know. Do I want to shit on other podcasts here? No. Okay. So it's a very popular show, like a top 10 show. And I've never, I haven't listened to any other episodes other than the one I listened to today. So I can, I'm basing this critique on that. Alex is, you know, a, a very attractive woman. I can tell from the photo. And I think that's probably why the Barstool sports crowd, that's kind of where that's a little bro right? Barstool is very bro and she gets on and she drops F-bombs like probably every fourth word. I'm not trying to sound like, uh, you know, the the language police here, but it can, it can get lazy. I mean, I like, I I love the word. A, a properly utilized fuck is great. A, adjective noun, but you gotta, you gotta be a little judicious in its use. You've gotta, you know, you can't just, it can't be fuck, 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 fuckity, fuck, fuck, fuck all the time. I, I don't know. For me, it gets annoying. So she had a, 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 a TikTok influencer on now. She didn't really set it up. She didn't tell us the name she didn't. Tell, and then this TikToker came on and apparently there was some drama and it was like, I'd gotten dropped into a, a high school girl's room while they were both talking. And I was about 10 minutes in and I, I was ready to bang my head against the wall. So I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm doing it anyway. I came on, I'm just trying to understand the world that we live in. And I, and especially when it, it relates to this podcast world that I'm in, this is one of the top biggest shows in the in the country. I was kind of amazed. Then I was thinking, what's the biggest show? What is the number one show going right now? And I went, top show. It's Wondry. The Wondry is a, a podcast network. They're producing, it's a like just cranking out content. IP, they would call it. Uh, intellectual property because they want to create other spinoffs of this. A lot of this stuff ends up becoming TV shows. Dear John, I think was one of their shows. They got a lot of it. So the new one is called in God, we lust. That's the number one show going. And it is about Jerry. It's a true, true crime story out of. It's a crime, but it's about Jerry Falwell Jr. and his wife. We know this story. They, they had a, they had an affair with the three of them with this pool boy from the, Hotel Fontainebleau in Miami, and it kind of, you know, all these photos came out, things happened. So, good story. I, I, I followed it when it was happening. The hosts of this show of In God We Lust are Brooke Sifrin and Arisha Skidmore-Williams. And they were good, they're, they're very polished, they deliver, but here, this is what made me nuts. And again, I'm just critiquing today. Maybe I'm, I'm pissy, I'm in a pissy mood, I need a drink, but... I'm listening to the show and the whole conceit of it is they're telling the story. One of them sort of, uh, you know, giving the play by play on what happened. But the other one is kind of pretending like she doesn't know, like she's just hearing it for the first time. And it was so distracting to me because she says, well, he meets this, the pool boy meets this attractive woman by the pool and she invites him back to the room. And on the bed is the husband lying there. Oh, would you like to have sex? And he's going to watch. And guess who that couple was? And the, the other co-host says, oh, boy, this can't be good. Pretending like she doesn't know who it is, but you're doing the podcast. That would be like if I came on and I, and right now and I was like, oh, boy, I, I don't know, man. I'm going to be shocked at who might be on this show today, who I'm going to be. Of course, I know that I talked to John Taffer. I did the fucking interview. They sold this podcast under the conceit. They're going to do a whole show about this. So why are they pretending like they don't know the details of what's, oh, what's coming next? <gasps> they know, they already know. Stop messing with us. Come on, damn it. I need to stop listening to podcasts. That's what it is. I need to, I need to, Well, and then the other ones, like, like I listened to The Daily. I'm a big fan of The Daily, The New York Times. But now The Daily has become so fucking depressing there, Alex Cooper. I'll, I'll use a fuck right there. It so fucking depressing The day, every day. It's like what doom and gloom can we put into your podcast inbox to bum you the fuck out while you're walking your dog. Jesus, I need a drink. All right. Good thing I do have a lot of that. And it's been a while since I've told you guys about stuff you should be getting. And I did, I did try some, uh, really good wine recently. Blindfold 2019 California white wine. This is from The Prisoner. We know that wine. You know, The Prisoner Wine Company. You know it. This is a kind of their spin on a white blend. It's really delicious. They, you know, they, they Chardonnay, Roussan, Viognier, and Musket are the grapes they use. Um, age it a little bit in French and Hungarian oak. It is a very crisp, but yet full and balanced. It's got some apple pie flavor in there. There's some peach, stone fruit. A summer's coming. This is going to be a good one. This is going to be a good one, especially if you like California white wines. It's called Blindfold. It's $32. Now, if you want to go red, I had a delicious red uh, the other day from Mount Viter Winery. Mount Viter is a, a an appellation in the Napa. Well, the app the appellation is Napa Valley. Mount Viter is a section up there. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon, ninety four percent Cabernet. There's a little bit of Malbec and a little bit of Merlot in there. This Mount Viter, twenty eighteen Cabernet Sauvignon. It's just this deep red ruby color. It, it got a lot of blackberry flavor, some cherry in there. There's a bit of chocolate, baking spices. It's it, the fruit is just big front and forward. I, I really enjoyed this wine. I, I I had it with a with a burger. Ever since I had George Moats on the show on this show, George Moats is one of the leading burger experts in the world. Ever since I had George on, I I can't get enough burger, man. I can't do it. So I got so I had that with this Mount Vedder. 2018 Cabernet Sauvignon. It's $48 a bottle, so that's not, you know, it's not cheap, but it's it's not out of the range. You can treat yourself. It's been a rough 14 months. Treat yourself. Do it. Do it. If wine's not your thing, maybe you want to go with a little rye whiskey. Our friends at Michter's, just they came out not long ago with their US one Barrel Strength Rye. Single barrel product. It's uh about the average proof in there is about 110. So it's substantial. The the ABV is substantial in this thing, but it, it's a powerhouse. Uh, I, and I love Michters. You've heard me talk about it a bunch of times on the show. I mean, these are, you, you can't go wrong. If, even if you buy this bottle and hold on to it and you just want to make some money down the line, you'll be able to resell it at some point because um, the, these are coveted whiskeys, Micters. This one's $100. I believe right around there us one barrel strength rye i made an old fashioned with that and i loved it i couldn't for all of you that come on to, at the imbiber on instagram and twitter or at wwd underscore podcast and you ask me questions about what i like oh this is what i like i like this one check it out so i got a, these these folks hit me up from the laurel canyon spirits company based here in the los angeles area where i live and it's Nathan and Brian are the partners. They decided to, it's a family owned business. So their wives or Dana and Tammy are involved in this thing. It's a whole family affair. And they've, they sent me, it's a, a coffee liqueur called Black Herte. It's H-J-E-R-T-E. That's Danish for heart. So Black Heart and apparently they hatched this recipe, Brian and Dana hatched it in their kitchen of their Laurel Canyon home. Coffee liqueur. You got to like that. You know, that's got to be your thing. They basically take corn vodka and French press a strong brew, uh, and we're deep, rich, dark roasted beans, and then they infuse this coffee, they infuse this corn vodka, and then you get your uh, coffee liqueur. I really enjoyed it. It was it, a lot of honey in there and some vanilla. And it was just, it was rich. I mean, it's not, you know, you're not going to go out to a bar and say, hey, I'm going to pound some coffee liqueur tonight. But I mean, it is a nice drink to have. You could do it over ice. You could do it with cream. You could even try and get adventurous and try it in a martini. Uh, <laughs> put it over some ice cream. And I'm not joking about that. You could do it. They also have a vodka, Black Heart, Black and the White Heart Vodka which they launched back in 2019. I I didn't try the buck. I'm going to just tell you that straight up. I just, I I did like the coffee liqueur and I am giving it a thumbs up. What we're drinking with Dan Dunn recommends it. I don't know if you can get it, but Google it. You can go to, uh, you know, Laurel Canyon spirits. Just Google that and find it. My recommendation for you. All right. Before I start spewing hatred about more podcasts (laughs) i'm sorry i have nothing against alex cooper or the people that do uh the lost lust one or and even the daily although i do i got a problem with the daily come on daily you can do better. i mean just stop this relentless barrage of negativity i wonder if news is is this like this all over the world or it's just the united states because i feel like i'm i feel like when trump was in office he just had this built-in thing that could just get every everybody was glued what like him or hate him you were always glued trying to figure out what's going on and now that he's gone not only the news channels but also podcasts like all right now how do we generate how do we keep people listening and i think the answer is well let's scare them even more that's what they're thinking you know let's make them think the world is even more fucked up than it was before like you know if you're not a trump fan and you thought the world was fucked up well okay that seems because look i listen to a certain kind of podcast i'm I'm obviously not listening to tucker carlson or anything like that so on my side of the aisle if you want to say on the liberal side the the libs how do they keep us engaged like the answer seems to be by making it seem like, oh no, like things are even more fucked up than they were before. And I just don't think that's true. I'd like to think we're coming out of the pandemic. Biden's doing a good job. Things are starting to look up for us, aren't they? Can I have some happiness? Just a little bit of positivity, please. Maybe John Taffer will give it to me. He's a positive guy. Actually, John's great. He is, but boy, that show, when he goes crazy on, on Bar Rescue. I just love that when he starts screaming at those guys. Oh, I love it. And now, a word from one of our dream sponsors, Colt 45, circa 1986.
0: Billy D. Williams talks about changing times. <laughs> times sure are changing. A girl called me up and asked me for a date. Says she's making the dinner reservations. It says she's coming to pick me up. Well, at least I can still say to her, how about a nice, cool, smooth Colt
1: 45? Hi. How about a nice, cool, smooth Colt 45?
0: Colt 45. Every time.
1: Who doesn't love a good Colt 45 from time to time? But honestly, if you want my go-to, I'm whiskey. I'm a whiskey guy. I am. And what's my go-to on that? Rabbit hole. Make bourbon. rye in extremely small batches 15 barrels or less they do this at their amazing distillery which is smack dab in the middle of downtown Louisville and I will go there soon it's an architectural icon on that Kentucky bourbon trail that we all love it's spectacular check it out next time you are in Louisville Rabbit Hole's recipes are totally unique created by my friend Kave Zemanian one of the coolest guys in the bourbon business him and his team spare no expense in making their bourbon and rye they never chill filter they use barrels that are toasted charred and wood fires which almost nobody does and what you end up with a line of bourbon and rye these really rich deep flavors that are unlike anything you've tasted trust me try some rabbit hole go to your local liquor store do whatever you gotta do just get the rabbit hole joining me now a gentleman whose no holds barred approach to rehabilitating bars has made him an international star is the creator, executive producer, and star of Bar Rescue, season eight of Bar Rescue, premieres Sunday, May 2nd, 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Paramount Network. Please welcome to the show, John Taffer. John, how are you?
0: Good, Dan. Good to see you, buddy.
1: It's good to see you too, man. And uh, you're looking hale and healthy. How are you feeling these days? Like
0: you well, you know, uh, we shut down my life last March 13th a year ago, and I really was very good. I stayed quarantined, and and uh, but now I'm out there. I'm vaccinated. Business is going up. I keep getting sales numbers from my friends at Shift4, who are the number one credit card processors for the restaurant industry. So I keep getting sales updates from them. And I got to tell you, we're coming back, and we're coming back strong. I'm pretty excited.
1: It does. It does seem that way. I mean, I've got I got my shots in my arm. I'm assuming you got yours as well. And and there is a real sense of optimism, I think. But also, I also think there's a hard reality that's going to that's going to come through, too, for a lot of people when we really do get to assess. The full scope of the damage of this, and I think one of the things that you're doing this year on the latest season of Bar Rescue is addressing that exactly, right? It's it's focused in Vegas, and these are bars that have been crushed by COVID-19, right?
0: Yeah, you know, Vegas had the highest unemployment impact in the country from from the shutdowns because we're a sole economy here in Las Vegas. We're strictly the hospitality business. Other than slot machines, there's no other real industry here in Vegas. So we had the highest unemployment at about 35 percent. So I felt there's no place better to focus my efforts than Las Vegas. And then we didn't do the strip bars with the blinking lights and all of that. These are local operations that are in Vegas that we're rescuing.
1: Okay. Now you, I'm very excited for the season. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the show. I've had some friends that have been on the show over the years. You probably don't remember half of them, but like uh, Joe Brooke and Elaine Duff and Nick Liberato, sure. Jason Brand, all friends of mine sure. who have been on your show. And I've been a fan for years. Your, your start though, you, you were born in New York, right? You're born in yep. uh, in Great Neck, New York. And then really where you kind of, you know, sort of cut your teeth in the business was out here in Los Angeles, right? You worked at Barney's Beanery and the Troubadour. Am I right on that?
0: Absolutely. You know, I went to Los Angeles. Back then, all of us did. We went from New York to Los Angeles. I was a musician at the time. So I played drums and bands and, and took my job at Barney's Beanery and the Troubadour, actually the Troubadour first and then Barney's Beanery. And that's really, I, I, I learned everything not to do at the Troubadour, and then I started to learn everything to do at Barney's Beanery. One was so poorly operated, the other was so tightly operated. It was a great first two operations for me to learn in.
1: You know, just having seen the Troubadour in popular media, for instance, most recently in Rocket Rocketman, yeah. and as portrayed in that movie, the guy running it was hoovering blow every night. And, and you know, and that does, you know, I want to go back on your history, but it does kind of bring up one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, beyond issues like undercapitalization or so-called acts of God, which is what we just had with pandemic. What are some of the primary reasons that bars that could be or ought to be successful fail? And I, you know, just from watching your show, the one that jumps out at me is the, the guy or the woman that wants to start a bar because they want to get drunk and hang out with their friends.
0: Yeah. Well, if you want to open a bar for social reasons, Dan, I suggest you do it in your basement. It's a lot cheaper, yeah. but you're right. It's a tough business and it's a business of variable controls, food controls, beverage controls, labor cost controls, recipe controls, cash controls. I mean, it's a business that you have to be in, in, engaged in deeply to be successful and where I find people fail is they're great at the social aspect of it. Then they can have great bartenders and they say hi to everybody but they don't know if they're profitable or not. And they run their business by how much money they have in a bank at the end of the month. And that, and that's just really a, a formula for failure. I believe that about 75 to 80% of independent bar operators don't even have P&Ls.
1: I mean, the margins are so thin in this business too, right? I yeah. mean, you've got to stay on top of everything.
0: You do. But, you know, the margins can be pretty darn good if you do it right. You know, uh, uh, we have uh, restaurants that run, you know, 25% EBITDA. Bars that run 28, 30% EBITDA, but we got to manage every dime to get to those numbers. And it 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 honestly it shocks me that people would put their life savings into a business, working it every day, but not just take that one hour a day to be disciplined and watch those numbers. But they don't do it.
1: John, what's the quickest you've ever walked into a bar? The shortest amount of time that's elapsed from the time you've walked in a bar that's gonna be on the show to the moment you realize. There's no fucking way anybody's saving this place.
0: Yeah, you know, typically, uh, and I'll be very candid, four steps in, it never takes me more than four steps in. All the stress tests and Bar Rescue does is confirm to me what I thought on the first four steps in. You know, in four steps in, I can feel the music. I can smell the environment. I can feel the temperature. I can see the organization of the bar in a dining room. I can see what food is on the tables, the way it's presented. I can see the lighting. I can see what's on the video system. I can feel the beats per minute energy and targeting of the music. I can see the uniforms. I can... <laughs> Everything within the first four steps of an operation when you get good, it doesn't take long to figure out what's wrong
1: you've been doing this a long time and there's been a whole bunch of new challenges you mentioned staffing when you started doing this we didn't have we didn't have these little uh, things of crack that everybody has in their pocket the cell phone that's got be that seems to me I mean that at least when I've gone into a place when I see staff, on their phones and doing this and it and it it's gotta be increasingly challenging when you when you're dealing with staff in their early twenties who have never known a life without looking at these phones constantly. How do you deal with that?
0: Well it's it's simple. You pull a phone out and you lose your job. Very simple. You know what we have to do as restaurant operators is the new generation is causing us to waver on our own standards, like what you're talking about Dan. We have to define standards and stick to them. And what is a standard? A standard is a measurement of performance that's qualifiable. This is what you're going to do. It's quantifiable. This is when you're going to do it. And it's verifiable. I'm going to make sure you do. If it isn't verifiable, it's not a standard. If it isn't quantified, it's not a standard. And if it isn't qualified, it's not a standard. And that's the breakdowns that I see happening today. We're reducing our standards to the level of employee behavior rather than elevating them to our standard of behavior. And there's a lot of factors that are impacting that. You know, Dan, I look at social media today, and I look at the fact that people on social media have instant gratification. You can put a picture of yourself when you wake up in the morning looking the worst you've ever looked, but somebody's going to say, looking great this morning, Dan, looking good, buddy, blah, blah. We get this bullshit gratification, excuse my language, instantly from all of these sources online. Now they come to work. Gratification at work doesn't happen instantly. It happens over time. You get recognized over time. You get promoted over time. You get better stations. You get better shifts. You start to make more money over time. A career is not instant gratification. A career is working towards something. So my point is the impact of society with instantaneous gratification is negatively impacting the business world where gratification is more traditionally earned. And they slap each other in the face And it's not only that phone. It's, you know, somebody doesn't get the best station week one. They're gone. You know, their manager is tough on them. They're gone. I mean, there's no commitment to career and future like there used to be. And that worries me very much.
1: When we talk about social media and Instagram, now the flip side of that, okay, I'm running a bar. It's a hot bar. I've got a staff. One of my servers has 150,000 followers and she posts pictures. Is that currency in this business now? Like she's posting pictures of come see me on my shift to 150,000 people. That is currency.
0: That is currency. And, and you know, years ago, I created something on social called Bar HQ. It was an app I created. And we since sold it to Shift 4 and it's been rolled into a POS system. But the whole point of the app was that the promotions we launched were fed through all of our employees' social media. So they would opt in when they joined our team and we could send the imagery and everything out on social media. You know, I'll tell a quick story. Years ago I went to the palms in New York and it was a waiter there by the name of Miguel and Miguel station was the first station to fill every night. And the last station to empty every day, Miguel made over hundred thousand dollars as a waiter. And one day I pulled Miguel aside. I say, how did you do this? He says to me, I printed business cards. When people come to my restaurant, I give them my business card. I say, when you want to come to the restaurant, it's not easy to get in. Call me. I'll make sure you get in. I've given out thousands of business cards. Whose station is the first to fill every night? Miguel's. Who's the last to empty every night? Miguel's. So I look at Miguel and I say, this is long. He's not on the internet at all. He's just handing out the cards. I say to Miguel, how did you think about this? And Miguel says, I have three kids I want to send to college. I can't wait for anyone to fill my tables. I need to fill them myself. You know, I tell this story to restaurant employees. We're in this together. You can all help me fill this restaurant. We can all do this together. And social media is a part of it. They work for me eight hours a day. They're ambassadors for my brand out there 16 hours a day. I should empower them to be brand ambassadors with business cards, social media content, or whatever I can to arm them to help them help me fill our restaurant.
1: John, you're, you mentioned some of the things you've done with the POS systems, and, and we'll talk about some of the other things, but you are a creator. And one of the things you created, which I have a personal history with, is that one of the a very, very popular nightclub way back in the day in Glen Mills, PA, right outside of my hometown of Philadelphia, called Pulsations. Pulsations and pulsations i went to pulsations i i believe the statue limitations is up on this i may have used a fake id when i went there might have gone in when i was young and uh it but it was a it was a monster it was i think there was like 20 levels to this place it was gigantic there was vip everything i i looked up rolling stone described it as the monster dance club that brought studio 54 vibes to west philadelphia Well, set aside that Rolling Stone clearly doesn't know the Philadelphia area, it wasn't in West Philadelphia, it was in Delaware County, not West Philadelphia, Uh, but this place was, I'm thinking it was like the 80s, and it went to about the mid-90s, and it was incredible to the point where they had this dancing robot that later appeared in Rocky IV, right? So tell us a little bit about Pulsations, what that meant to your career.
0: Sure, Pulsations was a huge nightclub created by Leon Altimos outside of Philadelphia, And Leon was actually a non-union builder and had to have remote starters in his car because the roofers union kept trying to blow up all the jobs and stuff that he did. He was a tough cookie, Leon. But Leon hired me to create the greatest nightclub in the world. And every Monday morning, I'd get a memo from Leon that says, remember, John, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. I never had an owner quite like Leon in those days. If I asked for one of something, he'd say, why not 10? He wanted to overdo it. So We hired international robotics to create a half a million dollar robot for us that was themed as an alien. We had a 27 uh, foot, nine foot tall diameter spaceship that drew 900 amps of electricity that flew into the room on an I-beam track, came down and deposited the robot on the dance floor. And this club held about 4,000 people. Uh, Those that are in the business listening, you'll be floored when I tell you this. In 1983 in November, Our first week in business, we did $647,000 in revenue, our first week open. This was a big venue with a lot of bars. One bar moved across the room. One foot a minute, it moved 80 feet across the center of the room. The premise of pulsations was movement. Lighting fixtures came out of the ceilings. They came up from the floors. Walls would turn. Things would move everywhere. And the spaceship would fly in and deposit Pulsar, our robot, on a dance floor. At that point, I had built a lot of things. We spent a lot of money on that club. It was the greatest effect system in the world. When Pulsar came on the floor the first time, Dan, ever on opening night, it was as close to a religious experience as I've ever come in my life. This robot comes out of this huge nightclub, 4,000 people on all the levels you're talking about looking down. He goes, wow, check this place out. And 4,000 people went freaking nuts. I looked at the robot operator who was standing next to me, and he had his controls in his pocket. So you couldn't tell who was operating the robot. But it's a heavy device, so he has to be near it so he doesn't run people over. I turned to my side. He's crying. The tears are going down his face. I look at the security guys around the robot. They're crying. And then I realized I was crying, too. That was a powerful lesson for me. I saw technology bring people to tears. It was at that moment that I understood what reaction management was. And reactions became a huge part of my life. And it all started that night in November in 1983.
1: In Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. And I still say
0: pulsations still might be. And I go to Omni and all the clubs here in Vegas. I still think pulsations would be, even today, one of the greatest nightclubs in the world.
1: Vegas aside, because Vegas is its own animal, Is are those days, especially now thinking post-pandemic, are are those days over? Are the days of these mega club? I mean, again, outside of Vegas, the days of these monster clubs with thousands of people, is anybody going to be able to take a chance on something like that? Because if this, we don't want to say it out loud, but the fear is like something like this can happen again. And when you've got a place like that, how do you survive?
0: Well, outside of Las Vegas, the nightclub industry has been in a demise long before COVID. I mean, all the big European clubs have closed. All the London clubs have closed. So, you know, the the premise, I'm going to use a, a dirty word, disco. But the premise of a large disco nightclub globally is much weaker than it's ever been. So even even COVID aside, I don't see the pendulum moving back to that for quite a while. And, you know, as one who's watched the industry for years, that pendulum goes big venue, little venue, live music, recorded music, live venues, non-live venues. I mean, I watch that pendulum go back and forth and back and forth. And no matter which way it goes, Dan, it always tends to swing back the other way. It might take years, but it comes back the other way. I don't see mega nightclubs coming back for a few years.
1: I know my time when I was young in the nightclubs and things could get crazy. I got to figure, you seem like a tough guy too. You've ever been in a bar fight?
0: Never. Never, never been touched. So I got to tell you, I'm a pretty good operator. I've always had security and stuff around me. But no, I've never, uh, never been struck in a bar ever, nor have I ever struck anyone in a bar.
1: That's pretty impressive because especially when you're in clubs like that, it's like you're going to come across an asshole at some point, but never no. happened.
0: Not well. You got to contain him before he, he, his his assholeness becomes too evident. <laughs>
1: gotcha. Uh, what would you say? I mean, you've gone all over John America, especially. What are, What are some of your favorite drinking towns in America?
0: Well, when I look at great drinking towns, some will surprise you. Uh, uh, you know, I found Austin. Obviously, is a great drinking town. Now there's a great mixology movement in Austin. Uh, You know, I find, uh, obviously, New York is a great drinking town. It always will be. Boston is a great drinking town. But, you know, I'm finding that mixology is exploding all over the country. We shot in Salt Lake City. I was there. I couldn't get over the mixology uh, going on in Salt Lake City in Portland, Seattle. So, you know, I think that, that every town is becoming more of a drinking town as mixology gets more and more known. And it's also interesting, Dan, during the pandemic, mixology came home. People, mixologists did stuff online. People bought ingredients. They made drinks at home. I do them with Taffer Mixology. We do recipes online. So people have now touched mixology with their own hands. They've poured. They've made things at home. I think that the palate has grown this year. And I think we're going to see that people are going to come back out post-pandemic with far more adventurous taste buds, if you will because they played with these things at home this year. So I see a great future for spirits. I see a great future for flavored spirits. You know, we take a look at spirits. Flavored whiskeys a year ago, people would turn their nose up, oh, no, no, no. Now we can't wait to mix with these things. You know, I remember when flavored vodka was the work of the devil. I mean, what mixologists would use flavored vodka? Today, they're creative opportunities. So I think flavored whiskeys, flavored spirits, I think all of these things are just create more of a drinking mentality in our society. Also, candidly, as you probably know, beer is in the toilet as a sector. Beer sales are way down across every conceivable category. And some of those beer sales have moved to seltzer for sure. I'm sitting here with mine right now, but a lot of it has moved to spirits. So spirits are vibrant. They're in a growth mode and they're doing very, very well, which is good for the bar business.
1: When you say, obviously people's palates have developed over the last 13, 14 months, there seems to be this feeling. And I think it's born of hope, which it should be, is that we're going to have the, you keep hearing this. It's going to be another roaring twenties. I wonder though, do you think people are really going to be – I think people might be a little more shell-shocked than you think, or are people going to come back out in force once somebody waves that flag and says, OK, we're good to go? Do you think they're ba- everybody's back out, or do you think it's going to be a touch-and-go thing?
0: Well, you know, I, was, uh, I did six – eight billion media impressions from my home this year, eight billion. I've been on every news channel. I sit on a board of one of the largest hospitals in America. So I've been forecasting straight out. Here's what I forecasted a year ago. I forecasted that on April 1st, things would start to change significantly. They have. I said that three things were going to happen. People were going to come back in three stages. First was the immediate phase. Those are the young people that are fearless. They're going to come out right away, COVID or not. Second, third is what I call the reserve third. They're going to watch. If things look safe, and the numbers are going in the right direction, they will start to come out. The third third is the certain third. They're not going anywhere until they're vaccinated and they know things are right. The problem is the third third has all the disposable income, Dan. So there is a demographic process that we're gonna go through the next two months as this happens. Let me leave you with this premise. We're gonna lose, give or take, 38% of all the restaurant seats in America as a result of this. In independent bars, we're going to lose upwards of about 42, 44% of all the seats, all the capacity. Let's assume the marketplace only comes back to 80% of what it was, but we have 38% less capacity. Boom town. Look at the bar business. Only 70% of people come back, but we have 40% less capacity. Boom town. No matter how you slice it, this is the summer of opportunity. Now, People have changed their traffic patterns. They're looking more to go. To go is not going to disappear. Curbside is not going to disappear. The consumer likes it. So don't think we're getting away from those things. We still have to market to curbside and to delivery in a restaurant business. The bar business still has to market to experience overpriced. But make no mistake brand loyalty is gone after a year. People are looking for new things. There's an opportunity to become a household brand this year unlike ever before and legacy brands could disappear this year. My point is this. We're not reopening, we're launching. You need to think of this as a grand opening. You need to open your business with the bigger and messaging and dominance of a grand opening visually and exciting while to reacquaint people to look at your business. Because right now, loyalties are gone. It's a whole open game as to where people land in these next few months. But Dan, I feel very strongly about this. We are looking at Boomtown. I'm in Las Vegas. Yes, This weekend, I took a, dr- a drive on the Strip. We're full. Vegas is full. Now, it's the first third and the second third. The third third isn't it's here still yet. Still waiting it see. out.
1: Is there, is there opportunity, John? Like, you know, there are a lot of places have closed out here in Los Angeles, but I've said this to friends. I said, someone's going to step in as someone who counsels and advises bar owners. There's a lot of opportunity out there. Now there's a lot of you know, commercial real estate available. There's a lot of locations available. What would you advise someone now? Who's going to, step in and maybe take over an existing property and try to what, what would be the number one bit of advice coming out of a pandemic to, to get rolling with a bar?
0: Well, as you know, then I have my Taffer's Tavern franchise yeah. and we've been selling franchises like crazy the past few weeks. We just sold the 10 unit deal in Florida. Why? Because he understands that landlords are aggressive right now and there's real opportunity for inexpensive conversions. Restaurants have closed all across the country. Those restaurants have the infrastructure of kitchens. They have the infrastructure of bars. They have floor plans. You don't need to pull utilities and stuff into the space. And landlords are pretty aggressive right now. They need deals. This is the time to do a deal. I believe you can get in right. I believe you can get into conversions that you don't have to build all new kitchens and everything. And I think this is an opportunity for a renter's market to get the right landlord deals. We have a franchisee in Boston who just got a premium location at a very attractive deal. Our franchisee in Washington, I can't believe the deals they're getting out there. But landlords are in a defensive mode right now. This is the time to come in and command the right type of deals in the right type of locations. Iconic locations that you would have never imagined, Dan, are available now.
1: You heard it here, folks. John Taffer is telling you, get in the game and again, John mentioned he's got Taffer's Tavern. He's got Taffer's Mixologist, which is, he mentioned a line of cocktail mixes, sparkling craft cocktail, hard seltzers. You can find, just Google John Taffer. There's so much going on. And of course, Bar Rescue Season 8 premieres Sunday, May 2nd, 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Paramount Network. This season is going to be. All Las Vegas. There's a lot of emotion going on. I watched the trailer. I see a little tear rolling down John's cheek. I got to watch this. Plus, this season, we'll celebrate the 200th episode. And man, as somebody who lives out in Hollywood, I can tell you, that is no small feat to get 200 episodes of television on. And that's going to air in June, and it features a family That is homeless, sleeping in the restaurant after they lost it. I got to imagine that thing's going to be very powerful. John Taffer, I love having you on, man. I'm going to be in Vegas soon, and I will be looking you up when I get there.
0: It's a deal, buddy. We'll have a beer together.
1: Can't wait.